All right, good morning. Thank you for being here in worship. And for those of you who are watching online or if you're in our overflow room, thank you for worshiping. So a couple of weeks ago, we started this series called Sins and Stones, covering the life of, of King David, who was the second king over Israel, the most famous king over Israel, who lived about a thousand years before Christ came. And, and on that first Sunday, we saw a couple of things. One was God's rejection of Saul, who was the first king over Israel. Saul started off following God, but eventually his heart drifted from the Lord. And because of that, God rejected Saul and his family line as the royal family over Israel. In most monarchies, the way it works is the king rules until he dies. And then his son takes over, unless the king doesn't have a son. And then his daughter takes over as queen. Like in the case of Queen Elizabeth, when her father, King George, died, she became queen. If things go as normal, when she passes away, Prince Charles will become King Charles. And then when he dies, Prince William will become King William. That's how monarchies normally worked, and that's how they worked in all of Israel's history except here. Because Saul had drifted away from God, God said, you nor your family will serve in the royal palace any longer. And so the second thing that we saw was God telling a prophet named Samuel to go to the home of someone named Jesse to anoint the new king. Jesse lived in this little town called Bethlehem, and Samuel went to Bethlehem, and Saul, uh, I mean, uh, Samuel had Jesse's sons paraded in front of him, and seven of the sons came in front of Samuel, and every time God said, no, he's not it, no, he's not it, no, he's not it, until finally Samuel says to Jesse, hey, is there anybody else? None of these are the sons uh, that are to be anointed the next king. And finally Jesse says, there's one, he's out in the field, he's just the runt of the family, he's not qualified to be king, bring him in. And when David came in, God said to Samuel, he's it. This is the one who will serve as the next king. So at that point, Samuel then took a crown and he placed the crown on David's head. David then was escorted outside where he um, got onto a chariot and there a parade from Bethlehem to Jerusalem took place. It's only a few miles from, Beth from Bethlehem to the city of Jerusalem. They had messengers who went ahead and told the people the new king of Israel is coming and so crowds lined the streets because they wanted to get a glimpse of the new king. And so this procession rode into Jerusalem and to the royal palace. David entered the palace. He went upstairs to the royal balcony went out onto the balcony with the crown on his head. There he waved to the crowds gathered below, and then he went inside, and he began his reign as king. And if you're new to church, that makes perfect sense, doesn't it? I mean, that's how the story should have gone. But if you've read the story, you know that's not it at all. That, that the prophet Samuel anointed David to be the next king, and then David left from there and went back to the field to tend sheep the place he had been before. In fact, if David was anointed king on Tuesday, his Wednesday didn't really look all that different from the Wednesday before. His schedule stayed pretty much the same. And as we go through the story of the life of David, here's what we'll find. David was anointed as king, but it took 14 years before that anointing would become reality, before he would actually take the throne as king, that he had to wait all those years before he actually got to the place that God had for him. 
All of us in this room know what it's like to wait. We're accustomed to waiting. You wait at a restaurant for a table. You, you, you wait for your food to come. We understand what it's like to wait. We wait on the text, and we watch the three dots in the bubble, and we think, just go ahead and push send already. We, we understand waiting. But there's that kind of waiting, and then there's the waiting on big, important things that is really hard. Waiting on things that our hearts desire. Waiting on things that will, that will change our lives. Waiting on, on the job to come. Waiting on the right job to come. Waiting on the next job, the promotion to come. And we feel like we're in a holding pattern waiting on that big thing to happen. Or waiting on the right person to come along. Waiting on the one who will be the one. Waiting to start the next chapter of life, to start a family. And we feel like we're in this holding pattern and it just will never happen. Or, or waiting on the phone call from the doctor. Waiting on the results of the medical test. Waiting and there's nothing that we can do and it's big news and it will change our lives. And it's hard waiting. It's a frustrating kind of waiting. I came across an article recently that was published several years ago in the New York Times uh, called Why Waiting is Torture. And in this article, they talked about a situation at the Houston airport where passengers were complaining about the wait time they had at the baggage carousel, that they would get off the plane and they would go to baggage claim and they were having to wait too long. And so the officials at the Houston airport decided to address the situation and they increased the number of baggage claim attendants and they cut the wait time down to eight minutes, which is well within the industry standards. And they did that and still the complaints continued. And so the article went on to say this, puzzled, the airport executives undertook a more careful on-site analysis. They found that it took passengers a minute to walk from their arrival gates to baggage claim and seven more minutes to get their bags. Roughly 88% of the time, in other words, was spent standing around waiting for their bags. So the airport decided on a new approach. Instead of reducing wait times, it moved the arrival gates away from the main terminal and routed bags to the outermost carousel. Passengers now had to walk six times longer to get their bags. The result? Complaints dropped to near zero. In other words, it was taking just as long or longer to get their bags, but they were walking further and waiting at the carousel for less time to actually get their bags. Here's why I think the complaints drop to near zero. There are two different kinds of waiting. There is active waiting and there is passive waiting. Active waiting is when you're waiting on something and you have the power to make it happen faster or you perceive that you have the power to make it happen faster. For example, you're waiting to get your bags, but you're walking to baggage claim to get those bags. And the faster you walk, the quicker you will get your bags. You are in control. That waiting is not as frustrating as passive waiting as standing there at baggage claim 
in front of the big black plastic doggy door looking thing, looking at the metal carousel going around and around and no bags are on the carousel and there's nothing that you can do except pray that the guy on the other side will finish his smoke break and go and load the bags onto the carousel so that you can get on with life. Active waiting is so much easier than passive waiting. In fact, if I'm going on a trip and I put the address of my destination into my Maps app and it says I have two choices, two different routes that I can take, one route will take me four hours and I will be going at the speed limit or about the speed limit the whole time. The other route will take me four hours, but it will be in stop and go traffic the entire time. I'm taking the former. I want to drive. I want to feel like I'm in control and I'm doing something to get there. Passive waiting is hard. And in this passage today, what we are going to see is how David reacted to passive waiting. What he did during the time where he really had little control over the situation. Now, one thing we need to note before we read the passage Although the account that we are reading today comes next in the book of 1 Samuel, it is out of order chronologically speaking. In other words, next week we're going to read about the most famous event in David's life, his battle against Goliath. What we are reading today happens after that event. Many times ancient writers would not write in chronological order. Uh, They would write in thematic order. And today... Uh, this event that we'll read about comes after that battle with Goliath. So here's the passage. It's 1 Samuel 16. We'll start in verse 14. Here's what we read. Now the spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. Now when you look at this verse at first glance, this is troubling. Not the first part. Now the spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul. We saw that that Saul had abandoned God, and so God withdrew his spirit from Saul. We understand that. It's the second part, that an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. Did that mean that God sent a demon to torment Saul? It, it seems to be out of the character of God. Now, admittedly, there are different interpretations of this verse. However, what most scholars say is this. Because Saul had abandoned God and God had lifted his spirit from Saul, what happened was Saul then opened himself to demonic attack. He was no longer under the protection of God. And when God lifted his protection, then what we see happen in Saul's life is suddenly these other spirits were there tormenting him. There's a similar situation uh, that we read about in Romans 1. Uh, In Paul's letter to the church at Rome, in the very first chapter, he talks about individuals basically chasing after the things of the world, running after sin so much that God finally says, okay, fine, just go for it. In fact, here's how Paul writes it. He said, therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts. It's one of the scariest verses in all of Scripture. For God to say, okay, that's what you want. That's where you want to go. That's what you want to pursue. Okay, have at it. Go for it. Scary verse to think about God saying, okay, I'm no longer going to pursue you. 
since your heart is set on something else. In the next part of this passage, Paul actually talks about the reason was is that individuals decided to worship the created things rather than the Creator. They made little g gods out of things that God has created. And because they made little g gods out of things that God has created, then ultimately their hearts were let down and God gave them over uh, to those things. In, In other words, those things that God has created and given us in life are wonderful blessings, but they are not to be worshiped. Money is a wonderful tool and a wonderful blessing of God, but it makes a lousy God. Sports are a wonderful thing to play and to watch, but they make lousy gods. Last night, it was wonderful to watch a certain game, but be careful. Understand, those of you who have watched the Braves for years, you get this. If that sport becomes your God, you will be let down. 2018, uh, my oldest son had just gotten to the point where he was interested in sports. In fact, it was a, it was a wonderful year to see him transition away from cartoons to ESPN. You know, t- to come in and he's watching Sports Center instead of Barney. You know, just a, a a great year. And the fall of that year was the first time he really understood football and would sit and would watch an entire game with me. So I remember us watching Georgia versus Alabama in the 2018 SEC championship game. Now we pulled for Georgia in our house, and at halftime, we were on cloud nine because Georgia was winning 28 to 14. We had it in the bag, except, as so often happens, and by the end of the game, Alabama had come back and they broke our hearts 35 to 28. Well, it was a Saturday night. I had to preach the next day. I said, I've got to go back to my home office. I've got to study. I went back. I pulled up my sermon. I was studying. And after five or 10 or 15 minutes, Katie comes into the office and she looks at me and she says, you need to go and deal with your son. Whenever she uses the pronoun your instead of our, I know something's wrong. And I thought, I've got my sermon. I've got you know, to, to get up tomorrow and preach. What's going on? She said, well, first of all, he's stomping around the den, throwing pillows. He's so mad. She said, but the big thing is he's announced that he's not going to church tomorrow. And he's telling me there's no way he's going to church tomorrow. All right. So I get up. I go into the den. And I Call him over to him. I said, all right, buddy, two things. One, you've got to quit stomping around throwing pillows. You're making a mess. Quit. Just quit right now. I said, the second thing is you need to understand you are going to church tomorrow. That Jesus is more important than any football game, and you are going to church tomorrow. A little eight-year-old, he looked at me and said, but, Dad, you don't understand. <laughs> now, I was already a little bit mad about the game. But I'm older, I'm able to kind of contain myself. But at that moment, all my frustrations came to the surface, and I just exploded. And I said, I don't understand. I don't understand. I've been watching them for decades. I understand. You weren't around in the 90s. You don't even know who Ray Goff is. I don't understand. I was there in 1991 when they lost to Vanderbilt. I don't understand. 
I, I remember year after year losing to Florida. I don't understand, and I just exploded on them. I understand what it's like to be a Georgia fan. His eyes were as big as saucers. He looked at me and said, I'm sorry, I'll go take my shower now. I think that's a great idea. Now, there's a reason I use that illustration, because some of us right now, we're way up here about Georgia football. Be careful. <laughs> Be real careful. If it becomes your God, and the day after a game, because of a loss, you can't go to church, or the next week you're snapping at everybody, or like Saul, you're depressed over a sports game, then that game has become your God. Anytime that we begin to worship the created things rather than the Creator, like Saul, we open ourselves up to depression and anxiety and a whole host of problems. That's exactly what happened in Saul's life. So here's what they did next. Verse 15, Saul's attendant said to him, See, an evil spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord command his servants here to search for someone who can play the lyre. He will play when the evil spirit from God comes on you and you will feel better. So Saul said to his attendants, find someone who plays well and bring him here to me. So Saul's attendants convinced Saul that music will help him feel better. Not just because of music, but there was an ancient belief that music would allow people to connect with God. And so they say, hey, bring someone in here who can play the lyre, this small stringed instrument that looks like a, a, a small harp. And before they go on a nationwide search for someone to come in and play for Saul, one of the servants has an idea. Verse 18, one of the servants answered, I have seen a son of Jesse in Bethlehem who knows how to play the lyre. He is a brave man and a warrior. He speaks well and is a fine-looking man, and the Lord is with him. Okay, so keep in mind, this event happened after David's famous battle with Goliath. David was well-known at this point as a brave man and as a warrior, a fact that he had proven on the battlefield. What was not known at this point, evidently, by many, was that David was also a great musician. I mean, evidently, David didn't waste his time during all those years tending sheep. He perfected his aim with a slingshot and became an expert marksman, so much so that when he faced Goliath on the battlefield with one stone, he was able to bury that rock right into the forehead of Goliath. And as well, while he was spending time tending sheep, he practiced the lyre over and over so that he became an expert musician. But those were not the primary ways he spent his time because you notice what this servant says. Yes, he's a great musician. He plays the lyre. Yes, he is a brave man and he is a warrior. He speaks well and he is fine looking. But here's the kicker. And the Lord is with him. The biggest way that David did not waste his time while he was tending sheep was that he spent time with the Lord. Underneath the stars at night, he would talk to God. As, as he tended sheep during the day and walked along behind them, he would talk to God. And so his relationship with God was so strong, the servant said, if you really want to know, King Saul, what this guy is like, here's what you need to know. Here's why he will help you. 
because the Lord is with him. He has an intimate relationship with God. Then verse 19. Then Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me your son David, who is with the sheep. Notice what Saul says there. Hey, I like this idea. So send this message to Jesse, the father of David. Send me David, who is with the sheep. The servant never said, hey, there's this great musician. He is a brave warrior, and the Lord is with him, and he is with the sheep. He never said he was with the sheep, but Saul knew this. Saul understood that he was with the sheep. You see, here's what Saul did not know, most definitely. Saul did not know that David had been anointed as king. Here's what Saul did know that everybody knew, that David had just killed this super soldier of the Philistine army named Goliath. Then here is what is amazing. Saul and everybody else knew that David, after that battle, went to tend sheep. He went back to his father's house, and he went back to his job tending sheep. Can can you imagine if a reporter was there that day on the battlefield? David defeated Goliath, cuts his head off with Goliath's own sword, The Israelite army chases off the Philistine army. It is this great battle, this glorious battle, and there's Fox News or CNN or some other news agency, and a reporter is there and says, Hey, David, you're the hero. You just whipped Goliath. What are you going to do now? Are you going to go on a book tour? Go on a speaking tour? will, Will there be a big parade to honor you as this great warrior? What will David, the hero, the giant killing hero, do next? Go back and tend sheep? Why? Why would you do that? We see it's like this. The sheep need me. And it's my job right now. I've got to go back and and do what I'm supposed to do because right now, this is my job. So often, we want the big stage immediately. We we want to graduate from college and right away get the corner office where the CEO sits. And we forget that God has to prepare us before those big opportunities come. We'll come back to that in just a minute. Verse 20. So Jesse took a donkey loaded with bread, a skin of wine, and a young goat and sent them with his son David to Saul. This verse lets us know that Jesse was a very wealthy individual. Uh, To have bread and a skin of wine and a young goat to be able to send with David to Saul meant that David came from wealth, meaning that David had been anointed as king, that David had defeated Goliath, that he came from a wealthy family, and yet he never considered tending sheep to be beneath him that he was willing to do whatever it was that he was supposed to do, even a lowly task like tending sheep. Verse 21, David came to Saul and entered his service. Saul liked him very much, and David became one of his armor bearers. Then Saul sent word to Jesse, saying, Allow David to remain in my service, for I am pleased with him. Whenever the Spirit from God came on Saul... David would take up his lyre and play. Then relief would come to Saul. He would feel better, and the evil spirit would leave him. Okay, so through a series of events, 
that from a human standpoint would seem to be coincidences, but were actually the acts of God guiding everything, David ended up in the royal palace. Here serving as an armor bearer to Saul, which was like the secret service. He was part of the protective detail of Saul, and as well as Saul's personal musician. Meaning that David went from tending sheep in the field, being brought into the castle right next to the king for basically an internship on how to lead a kingdom. David did not grow up the son of a king. David did not grow up in royalty. He did not get the chance to learn how to lead a kingdom. And yet God brought him to the place where he was able to sit at the feet of Saul and learn how to serve as king. And quite ironically, not from God's perspective, but from our perspective, quite ironically, he used the king that God had rejected to teach David, the new king that God had chosen, how to lead a nation. Now, what you notice here, David did not orchestrate these events. David did not have to manipulate circumstances to weasel his way into the castle, to maneuver his way close to Saul so that he could gain this internship. David did what God had called David to do. He went back to the field to tend sheep, and he allowed God to orchestrate events for him to end up in Saul's service. Again, we'll come back to this in just a minute. So what does this mean for us? When we are passively waiting for something, how can we wait well? Three things. Number one, don't waste your wait. The first thing is, don't waste that time of waiting. We see this very clearly in the life of David. He was called to the very mundane task of shepherding. Now, I'll confess to you, I have never shepherded before, but to me, it does not seem like a job I would enjoy. First of all, it seems very lonely. You know, I know sometimes shepherds work in groups, but that's not the most efficient way to shepherd. They would divide the sheep, and one would shepherd this flock, and another one this flock, and another one this flock. And it just seems like you spend a whole lot of time alone. And I envision shepherds kind of ending up like Tom Hanks and Castaway talking to a volleyball. You know, you're talking to sheep all day, and it just seems to me, to be kind of lonely. The second thing is shepherding seems kind of boring. You're just with sheep all day. You know, it, it doesn't seem that exciting, I guess, until a wild animal attacks, and then it becomes extremely exciting. In fact, shepherding, I think, is the equivalent of the modern-day job of being a pilot. You know, I've never flown a plane, but flying a plane to me seems like hours and hours of boredom punctuated by moments of sheer you know, scary, uh, sheer fear, you know, like landing to me would just be extremely scary. But for hours and hours, you know, it's just kind of boring. That's how shepherding was. You know, you're just going along. You're, you know, it's just boring until something happens. Either way, to me, it seemed like this mundane task for a guy who had been called to serve as king, and certainly for this guy who had just defeated Goliath, to go back and serve as a shepherd. And yet David did not see it this way. And he did not waste his time just simply passively waiting on God to do something bigger in his life. 
He used this time of waiting to develop the skills that God had for him that would later prove David on the bigger stage. If David had wasted his wait and just sat there all day tending sheep, he never would have developed the skills that he needed to beat Goliath. He never would have become an expert marksman with the slingshot. If David had wasted his weight, he never would have become a skilled musician, which became the key for him to enter the castle and learn how to, uh, to lead a nation as a king. If he had wasted his weight, he never would have developed the character he needed to ultimately lead a nation. David used these mundane days to develop what God wanted to develop in him. I don't know, for some of you right now, you may feel like you are in a holding pattern, that you're waiting on that job, that you're waiting to graduate, that you're waiting for the right person to come along, that your entire life has been put on hold like you're just listening to elevator music, waiting on the doors to open for your next big thing to come. Virtually every day during the week, I uh, drive our four kids to school. Uh, there are a few days I do, do not do it, but the majority of the time, 90, 95% of the time, I drive our kids to school. Uh, because of traffic, it's about a 25 or 30-minute drive. Uh, my daughter has told me that I have become better about letting them listen to music, um, but most of the time I talk. And, and I try to listen, but most of the time I talk. I'm trying to use this time to, um, to both listen to them and to um, to infuse certain truths in their lives. And there are two things I say every single morning. The first thing is this. No matter what happens today, I want you to remember that your daddy loves you. No matter what. No matter what you do, no matter what is done to you, no matter what happens at school, I want you to remember that your daddy loves you. The second thing that I want you to keep in mind is that today is the first day of the rest of your life. What are you going to do with it? What are you going to do? Now, if you're in school, you may think, I just want to get through it. I just want to get through this day because it seems boring and I do not understand how algebra has any relation with real life and I don't get this and, and you just want to move through it. But today is the first day of the rest of your life. What is it that God wants to do in your life today? What opportunities is God giving you today? that will develop your character for something bigger later. Don't waste your waiting. Don't waste the day that God has given to you. The second thing is this. Don't waste your wait, but don't rush your wait as well. I am sure that this was a huge temptation for David, especially after being anointed king. He had heard clearly from God that his destiny was to be king, but it just wasn't yet. And I'm sure that he wanted to try to manipulate circumstances or to do something in some way to get Saul off the throne so that he could sit in his rightful place on the throne. But David never did that. He waited on God's timing. He trusted in God's timing, and he never tried to move ahead of God. He did not try to speed up God's will for his life. So often, that is exactly what we want to do. God has some plan for us. We're convinced that God has this thing that's out there for us, but it's not happening quickly enough, and we have waited, and we have waited, and we have prayed, and we have waited, and it just has not happened, and we've said, fine, God, if you're not going to do anything about it, I'm going to do something about it. The story that I hear all the time is of 
someone who's single and they've waited on God to bring the right Christian person along and it doesn't happen and it doesn't happen and it doesn't happen and they say, fine, God, if you're not going to bring that person along, then I'm going to marry this one who's not a Christian because I just want to be married. And it could have been that just, just right around the corner was God's person for you. Right around the next, the next week, the next month, what's God's person. We so often want to push God along, and we want to rush God. Most of you know that we have two adopted children, and if you've ever gone through that process, you know there is a lot of waiting, and it is frustrating waiting. And there's so many things that, that you just cannot do anything about, and so many times that you're tempted to hire just a, an entire team of lawyers and to go and to make something happen that is just not ready to happen yet. And so often we had to say, no, we're going to wait on God's timing for this. Whatever it is, when, when you're in this holding pattern, don't rush God on it. And finally, here's the last thing. Don't waste your waiting. Don't rush your waiting. And wait on God to handle your enemies. Wait on God. Of all the waiting well that David did, This is where David really shined the most, and his character came through. Saul was not only the king who was on the throne that David should have had, but Saul would later become the enemy of David and try to kill David. And David never retaliated. David waited on God to handle Saul. And I will be the first to admit, this is hard. When we are waiting and there is someone who is our enemy, who is causing us to wait, who is in our way, we want to handle them. We want to get revenge on them. Again, in the book of Romans, here is what we read Paul saying about getting revenge. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. And then here's the key. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge and I will repay, says the Lord. Here's what Paul is saying here. So often when we say, God, I'm going to handle this myself and I'm going to get revenge. Paul here says, but you're not leaving room for God's wrath. And many times we get back at our enemies, God says, you know, I would have done a lot worse to them. But you decide to handle on your own and you squeeze me out of the situation. And you know, I, I really would have done far worse to them, but I'll let it go now. And Paul here says, wait on the Lord. The Lord knows exactly what is right. The Lord understands every aspect of the situation. And the Lord will handle your enemy in His time. So if you're waiting on something, if right now you feel like you're in a holding pattern, do not waste this time. This is a day that God has given you. Do not waste the opportunities that God has given you today. Don't rush it. Don't try to rush through whatever it is that God has for you. And do not try to get back at your enemies. Trust in the Lord and wait on Him to bring you what He has for you. Because at the end of the day, it's always God's plan that is best for our lives.